0: Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge.
1: Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio.
0: Well, good morning. Let me open with a question. Is it possible to be good without God? Is it possible to be good without God? Earlier this week in the city of Somerville, Massachusetts, the city moved to legally recognize polyamorous families. The median income in Somerville, Massachusetts, is over $91,000 a year. It is 50 percent wealthier than the city of Boston, significantly wealthier than other cities uh, across the state of Massachusetts. Uh, And Massachusetts is the fourth wealthiest state in the U.S. So we're talking here about uh, people who Cal Thomas in our conversation earlier this week would have described as people of decadence. Once you have arrived at the place where you are so monetarily uh, comfortable that you feel very confident you don't need God, then you tend to start operating as if God is not. And when you are operating as if God is not, you end up with things like polyamorous families. That's the trend line. That's the trajectory. Wealthier people think they need God less. And actually, they don't think they need God in order to be moral. They imagine they can be morally good without God. We have actually spoken recently with such an individual uh, who describes himself as a secular Jesus follower. Pew Research released a study uh, earlier this week surveying more than 38,000 people in 34 countries. And overall, 45 percent agreed that, quote, belief in God is necessary in order to be a moral person and have good values. Guess where that does not hold up? Wealthier countries. The higher a nation's GDP per capita, the less likely its people are to believe in a connection between God and morality. So let me encourage you to go back and listen to the conversation that I had with Cal Thomas. You can get uh, that podcast at myfaithradio.com. And then one more, uh, one more comment here about what's going on in the culture before we bring on uh, Adam Holtz. A hallmark, a hallmark is a stamp certifying the purity of a precious metal. That's actually the definition. So in order for a precious metal to be certified um, as pure, it receives a hallmark. Hallmark is, you know, the gold standard. It's the measure of purity. Now keep that in mind when I read the next headline. Hallmark set to make LGBTQ-themed movies. Hallmark, a company named after the standard of a purity measure, is now going to make LGBTQ-themed movies. It has announced that it will feature in the coming months LGBTQ storylines, characters, and actors. If Hallmark is the hallmark of purity in our nation, God help us. Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family is up next. Joining me now, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. You can find everything we're talking about today at PluggedIn.com. Adam, welcome back.
2: Carmen, great to talk to you.
0: Okay, let's start with movie reviews. Yeah. I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to call it Ip Man 4 or Ip Man 4.
2: <laughs> or, or Yip Man 4, as if there were a Y. And honestly, oh, I have... Oh, heard... I'm
0: so sorry. I This is the danger of me trying to do anything that's like culturally on the edge.
2: Right. Well, hopefully there's grace for not knowing Chinese pronunciation. Let's just start there. <laughs> so uh, the four in this movie's title tells us that there have been three before it, and... Here's the funny thing. Um, This is a franchise that has been compared to Rocky and the Karate Kid for China. It's an extraordinarily popular franchise there. Now, that alone was not enough to prompt me to say, hey, we should cover this. Um, But as I was talking about it with some of my teammates, a couple of people in our area popped their heads up over the cubicles and said, oh, yeah, I've seen all those movies. I love those movies. And, you know, it's an example to me of, all the stuff that's happening on the internet that even if most of us haven't heard about it, a lot of people have. Um, and right now we're trying to cover as much as we can that there's some reasonable chance that people will watch. So uh, the Ip Man franchise stars Donnie Chen, and some people may recognize that name. He was uh, he was the blind Jedi-like non-Jedi in Rogue One. Um, you know, at one point they... They blindfold them, and he says, are you kidding me? I'm blind. My son quotes that (sighs) line all the time. And Ip Man, it's based on a real uh, person. He was Bruce Lee's mentor. And so after Bruce Lee came to America in the, the late 60s and started to become famous for training people in Kung Fu, he tried to get Ip Man to come over with him. Uh, he didn't want to, but then circumstances change, and it man i think it 's actually Mon, not man, even though it looks like man uh decided to come to America where he faces all kinds of racial prejudice so if there 's a theme here it 's facing racial pres presence, and he 's sort of the the stereotypical uh sensei if you will, you know the master who is unperturbed, who doesn't respond emotionally in a good way. Uh, is pretty restrained, is not prone to violence, but don't make him angry, you won't like him when he's angry, uh, which I know is about the Hulk, but I think it applies here. So interesting story about racism, about restraint, uh, about you know some of those themes in America today. And, of course, this is a martial arts movie, so tons and tons of, of very artful kung fu fighting, uh there's just a, a very quick scene with a little bit of nudity in it. Uh so not really family friendly, a fair bit of profanity too. Um but uh that is the scoop on Yipmon for the finale.
0: Thank you. I feel much more well informed. All right, how about yeah. ra- radioactive?
2: Yes. You know what? This is not a new Godzilla origin story movie, even though you'd be forgiven for perhaps thinking that from the title. Far from it, actually. This is a story of of Marie Curie, who if we can sort of raid our memory banks for when we were in grade school, we might remember she had something to do with radioactivity. And indeed, she did. Uh, At the end of the 19th century, as it rolled into the 20th century, she and her husband, Pierre, were instrumental In uh, some very initial work on radioactivity. And they discovered the elements radium and polonium and really played a key role in advancing X ray technology, radiation treatment for cancer. And their discoveries even lead pretty directly to the atomic bomb a couple of decades later. So that's the textbook version. Here we get the backstory. And it turns out Marie Curie was a Polish woman who had immigrated to France. She was brilliant. She was fierce, and those are admirable character qualities. She was also pretty headstrong, didn't listen to people, and tended to offend people fairly regularly. And her husband, Pierre, was kind of a kinder, gentler soul who almost operated like her PR handler to try to keep her in check from saying and doing dumb things that would get her in trouble. Uh, And after he's killed in an accident, unfortunately, she kind of goes off the rails. She has an affair with a married man. Um, and so what we get here is I think a, a pretty – a portrait of a woman who is brilliant but pretty rough around the edges and ultimately not a as big a moral exemplar I think as, uh, as a scientific one. So if you're interested in her story, this movie dives into it. I will say there's a uh, – there are a couple of sensual scenes that show – Probably about as much as I think you can get away with in a PG-13 movie these days. So Mm. it felt gratuitous to me because people are interested in history. We want to know about these folks. But this one tosses some things in that really felt gratuitous to me, and that was a disappointment.
0: All right, Adam uh, Holtz and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things that are posted at PluggedIn.com. What parents should know about the parlor app. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about cultivating a news point of view. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families, Plugged In. Um, Adam, one of the things that lots of our kids are plugged into are apps on their phones. And I want to yep. talk uh, with you about the Parlor app. And yep. for those of you who are interested in knowing more, um, there is an article posted at PluggedIn.com uh, on this topic. What should parents know about the Parlor app? Tell us about Parlor.
2: So, Parlor, uh, which I'm betting from the spelling is borrowing from French because parlay in French means to talk. Uh, so I, it's not spelled with an O, it's spelled with an E. So I'm guessing that's where they stole it from. And this is a, the short story is, it is a Twitter-like uh, micro communication app. You can have up to a thousand characters, uh, which is about four times as long as the average tweet. And its makers really wanted to create a place that, uh, people have the freedom to talk about whatever they want without worrying about whether they're going to get censored, whether they're going to get shot down. And so some folks have characterized it as a conservative version of Twitter. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the the upshot. That's the, the thumbnail sketch. And the founders have said, you know, obviously there's still some some guidelines here. You can't post explicit material. You can't make you know, violent threats against people. So there are some guardrails, uh, but it definitely is a politically conservative or right-leaning platform uh, in response to the continued evidence that many social media platforms—Twitter, uh, Facebook, Google—there are allegations that that they really are biased against conservatives and biased against people of faith and that they manipulate their algorithms to bury that content. So these folks are trying not to do that. And with any social media app that involves verbal or video communication, I think that what we have to be communicating with our teens is there are all sorts of ways that that can go wrong. Like we need an enormous amount of, of self control, uh, and, and wisdom in the way we interact. And, um, This isn't about Twitter, but my son does have an Instagram account and he was online with a number of friends the other night and uh, they were having a a group chat on Instagram and one of them realized that one of the members had a a Trump 2020 uh, post on his Instagram account and they basically started to do a ninth grade version of canceling him right there. And my son stood up for him and said, come on, guys, you know, let's let's think this through. We don't have to be responding like that. And before they knew it, they had kicked all the conservative people out of the conversation. These are ninth grade boys going into ninth grade. Hmm. And my son came up and was just deeply hurt that even as he tried to stick up for his friend and say that, you know, we don't have, need to have knee-jerk reactions. They were calling him a white supremacist. They were saying he was racist. That the political dialogue in our culture is not just affecting people rioting in cities. It's affecting our kids. They're watching the news. They're listening to their parents. And this cancel culture that we have been talking about uh, in our culture quite a bit, it's trickling down to our kids. And I just think it was one of the more disturbing things that, that I have seen recently because There's no middle ground, you know, you're either with us, you're against us. And, you know, if you're on the wrong side, you're a racist, you're a white supremacist. And, and social media by its very nature breaks things down into sound bites and we label people as other, and then we reject them. And that's really, really dangerous.
0: So Adam, um, first of all, I have to push my mic mute button long enough to sneeze. Okay. I'm back. Um, Sorry about that. You know, sometimes, right? You just have a sneeze and it has to come.
2: I um, understand.
0: Adam, um, first of all, that grieves me. Um I'm so proud of your son for standing up for his friend and standing up for what he knows to be right and true. It grieves me um that we are we adults are yeah. teaching. I mean, this is that's learned behavior, right? So that's they're learning that. They're, yep. learning that. they're learning that. Um, I could uh, I could spend some time reflecting here. I won't take long to do it. Um, basically, as a conservative in a former mainline, very liberal denomination, that was my experience. Like, yeah. it's one thing for liberals to say we want every viewpoint at the table. But when they win, they then don't want anyone of any oppositional viewpoint at the table. They right. they want it, them gone as fast as possible. Um, there's a they view it as a purification of um, and it is uh, it it the culture has learned it from mainline Christianity, and now yep. our kids are suffering the effects of it. And uh, there are going to be people listening who think that's an overstatement. And I would be happy to converse with you directly. You can text me at eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four, or you can email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com, dot com, and I'll tell you more of that story. Um, Adam, I do want to get to this piece that you have posted at pluggedin dot uh, com, and it is on cultivating a new, and then with an S in parentheses, news point of view. Tell us about this.
2: You know, I think that we talk about media discernment often in terms of content and fictionalized programs, and we understand that certain things can have a corrosive influence on our soul. But I think right now we're living in this crazy time where there's so much bad news that some of us, and, and not everybody is in this boat, we can be so focused on the news, whether it's the coronavirus, whether it's the racism issues, whether it's other things, that it consumes our perspective and it shapes us deeply. And I think that we need to apply media discernment um, also to the way that we consume news. And I love the way J.B. Phillips translates Romans twelve one and 2, and I'm just going to quote part of it. Uh, the, the phrase that I love is, don't let the world around you, squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And the NIV says, I think, you know, let your minds be transformed. And now more than ever, we have got to be saturated with truth to be able to put all of the bad news in the right perspective. And honestly, I think if we're saturated with truth, we may be less interested in spending so much time fixated on the news. And, and it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. It's on the radio. It's on our social media feeds. It's on TV. And certainly it's, a, it's really important for us to be informed. But for those of us who have a bit of an obsessive streak, uh, I think this may be an issue that that we really need to submit to to Christ's lordship and say, how am I interacting with the news? Is it, is it making me angry? Is it making me irritable? What is the fruit of that and if and if so, what's the response? And and so I think it may not be a habit that we would immediately identify as needing changed uh, and transformed and, and remolded. But I think for some of us, for me included, you know, I can get up and read the news in the morning and be in a bad frame of mind from the get-go if I'm not also choosing Scripture or more importantly, maybe choosing Scripture first and letting that be the frame through which I see things.
0: Absolutely. Um, I'm going to direct people to your podcast. Uh, Focus on the Family has the Plugged In show. It is a podcast. Episode 33 is on media discernment. And so I want to encourage you to check that out. Um, You can also just read the article, Cultivating a News Point of View at PluggedIn.com. And you can find the link to the podcast there as well. Adam, thank you so much for joining us again today.
2: Carmen, thank you.
0: Appreciate what you're doing. We'll be right back. I guess I'm wondering if you think about things in terms of black and white, and if so, well, what does that mean? Even the way that we use those terms in our common parlance, we'll play on the word parlor there for those of you who are looking for that uh, information again. Um, Parler, the app that we talked about with Adam Holtz is P-A-R-L-E-R, about, you know, parlaying back and forth in conversation. Um, sometimes we use the terms black and white in our vernacular, common vernacular or, or everyday parlance, as if one is good and one is bad. Um, just think about that. Just think about the way that even the use of those terms changes the way we think about things or influences the way that people feel about themselves and others. All right, we are going to have a conversation next with Seth and Nerva Reddy. Uh, They are very accomplished Christian musicians. We've had them on the show before. They are uh, white and black. They are experiencing life today in not only America, but in uh, the Christian subculture of America as an interracial couple, and we're going to talk about that. I'm going to have a very candid conversation with Seth and Nerva next.
1: God occupies the only seat on the Supreme Court of Heaven. He wears the robe and refuses to share the gavel. This is Max Locato. Paul wrote in Romans 12:19, Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it vigilantes displace and replace God. I'm not sure you can handle this one, Lord. You may punish too little or too slowly. I'll take this into my hands, thank you. Is this what you want to say? Jesus didn't. No one had a clearer sense of right and wrong than the perfect Son of God. In 1 Peter 2.23, we're reminded that when he suffered, he didn't make threats, but left everything to the one who judges fairly. Only God Assesses accurate judgments, perfect justice. Vengeance is his job. Leave your enemies in God's hands. This is Max Licato.
0: Seth and Nerva, uh, ready are a fabulous couple. They um they bring us great music. Uh if you are not familiar with their One Voice project, uh let me encourage you to check that out. Their website is Sethandnerva.com. Um Seth and Nerva, welcome again to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Thank you, Carmen. So good to be back. Yeah, Thank you for so having good us to hear again. From
0: you. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful to talk with the two of you. Um let me uh let me introduce you to the audience this way for folks who don't know you yet. Nerva, uh, a Chicago native, her parents immigrated to the United States from Haiti. She graduated from Fisk University in Nashville. Then she traveled for a decade with Toby Mack as a part of the Diverse City Band. Seth grew up in Central Florida, rose through what I'll describe as the Christian music ranks with Kirk Franklin. The two of them met at the Billy Graham crusade in San Diego through a mutual friend who introduced them. They have been making uh, really beautiful music for seven years and... um, I don't know how long you've been married. How long have you been married?
4: Coming up on 14 years this summer.
0: Okay, wow. Okay, well, then maybe you've been making beautiful music together for more than seven years. Maybe I point to seven years (laughs) ago because that, that's when your first album dropped. There you go. All right. So, see, some things to correct me on. Um, Now, what I have not uh, yet disclosed to the audience, and because this is radio and not uh, some video platform they can't see, uh, is that Nerva is a beautiful black woman and Seth is a very handsome white guy. Um, so we're going to talk today about being um, black and white and married and Christian in today's America. Um, and I just want to thank you in advance for what for a lot of people would be a very uncomfortable conversation. But I trust is going to be one that the three of us can have together.
4: Very much. Thank you so much, yes, Carmen. Absolutely. Glad to have glad to have it. Oh,
0: yes. <laughs> so um, if let me just tee it up this way, Um where do you where do you hope this conversation um, leads
3: today? Oh, wow. You know, I think. Truth, love transcending the challenges, not transcending in a way that we escape it, but rising above this delusion, this this deluge of pressure to hate based on group identity because of past sins. I don't think that's the way forward. But just real conversation, understanding, less, less less lace it with some love and honesty, is is my heart.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I, and I would say, you know, with everything going on this summer, we have been trying to just frame, just stay biblical and centered in that, and not take our cues from the culture. Um, but also not duck out of the conversation. Sure. And so we try to always just maintain that kind of focus on, on God's ways, no matter what's going on around us and swirling, swirling about. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's it. So, Nerva, your um your answer to that question really lifts up what what feels like uh, an unavoidable reality and that's this deluge that we're just sort of all in the midst of seth your answer lifts up the um i think equal reality that some of us um have have the privilege of not having to have the conversation if we don't want to we feel like we can turn away from it and avoid it um and so i think right in that place lies the tension where you guys live um because You are Christians in the, you know, Christian subculture here in the United States of America. And one of you is, you know, ethnically black and one ethnically white. Um, And so I want to I want to just have the open conversation, much like Emmanuel Acho is having these uncomfortable conversations with a black man. And he's just willing to very publicly ask questions in front of an audience that would be absolutely terrified to ever ask uh an interracial couple the kinds of questions that I think people need to hear your answers to today, so again, um thank you for your willingness to do this um, Did either one of you ever date a person outside of your own race before each other?
3: Mm. yes <laughs> is my answer I did uh just a couple of times um, and it, it's then that's a good question if you tell me growing up on the South side of Chicago in a Haitian community that I would have ended up marrying a white man, I would have said, there's no way that's not going to happen because our worldview back then is you, you stick to your culture, you, you stay within your race. Um, you don't cross those boundaries. So <laughs> good question. How about you, Seth?
4: Yeah. You know, It depends on how they're defining race every day is changing right now. Oh, there you go. But if you, uh, if, if if, quote unquote people of color includes Latin, then, then yes, but not, uh, that she would have been the first quote unquote black person that I had dated.
0: So see, even the fact that we have to define the term, um, That we might have used or that we might have thought about uh, 15, 16, 20 years ago versus the way that we are hearing and having to find to define the term today. I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful for the three of us to be able to say the definitions have shifted Mm -hmm. and the definitions are shifting. And every conversation requires us remaining non-defensive long enough to ask the other person what they mean by something.
3: Yeah, that's so good. For sure.
0: So when I, um, if I were to ask a question, um, like, I don't know, every, um, every age, every generation has its unique bondage mm. from which it needs to be freed, right? By the gospel, redeemed in Christ. How would you describe our current cultural bondage?
3: Whew. I just got
4: it. Yeah, that's good. I think, um... You know, we've done kind of racial unity ministry for a while now. And I think when we first started, in some ways, I've described it like this, um, going down a river and you want to stay in the middle to make forward progress. And there's rocks on both sides. You don't want to hit either side um, or it'll break your little canoe. (laughs) And, uh, you know, on the the left side of the river, I've described it as, you know, kind of the older school, like where there's this, you know, maybe – continued segregation in the church, some some racist um, elements from the past where people, you know, we still got a little trouble being an interracial couple in churches. But then on the right side is kind of the new school where, you know, you get the critical race theory and the cultural Marxism. And I would say right now in our generation, it's pulling toward that side. And so now we're finding ourselves often trying to get in this conversation and warn people of the dangers of where the culture is wanting to take us to utilize race in in an unbiblical way to divide people and try to usher in more of a socialist, um, Marxist um, approach and and undermine kind of the good principles that were part of our founding in America. And so I think we have to be real careful right now that we don't um, get moved by our desire to correct past wrongs into a into an area and an ideology that's going to be worse uh, the where the cure will be worse than the ailment if that makes sense.
0: So I'm talking with Seth and Nerva Ready. You can find them at Seth and Nerva. Nerva is n i r v a dot com. Seth and Nerva We're going to continue this conversation. Uncomfortable for a lot of people, but you know, I like to have uncomfortable conversations. So we're going to continue this in just a moment. We'll be right back.
4: All right.
0: Continuing my conversation with Seth and Nerva Ready. You can find them at SethandNerva.com. Check out their podcast. In addition to all of the great music that they publish and produce, Um, uh, Seth and Nerva, either one of you can, you know, answer this question uh, first, but I'd love to know, um, love to hear the story of maybe the first time you introduced the other to your families um, (laughs) and maybe what you anticipated. And then, you know, obviously you're you're well knit together at this point. So um, just talk a little bit about that journey.
3: Sure, when I uh brought Seth to my family, I think I introduced him to my mom first. My mom came to town and we were all just hanging out and I told her, "Yeah, I think mom, we we this relationship is getting a little serious." She immediately loved Seth. She never had any problems about it. She was my mom's a very loving person that loves all walks of life, all people. And my dad was more when things got really serious, um, my dad was like, Now you sure about this? Let's really count this cost. I know he must love you if he's coming outside of his comfort zone, you know, to to <laughs> go there and but um my dad wanted to make sure that I would be okay and he could foresee um just some challenges that we would face. My mom just like, if you love him, go for it. How yes?
4: Yeah, and I you know, I think my family I knew they would Love her when they met her, which they did. I think they were a little concerned at first just about, you know, man, our church is going to accept you guys. Yeah. Y'all do ministry and churches and all that. And then we had some, you know, not parents, but close family members that were not, um, okay with it at first, you know. So it actually served, I think, um, God used it as an opportunity for some folks in my family to, to really, um, Drop some unbiblical ways of thinking about race and and he really used it for an opportunity for them to to repent and move forward and and really view others in the image mm-hmm. of God that they hadn 't viewed like that in the past so you know I, I would say that was that was our journey and now those very people love her more than they love me <laughs>
0: <laughs> were they right about some of those challenges when you think about the um, the journey um, from that point to this point and engaging in the church, in the Christian subculture. Um, were, were they right about some of those challenges?
4: I would say not. We didn't really. No, I think they had probably. An, a bit of an unrealistic view. You know, Nerv and I've traveled a ton over the past, you know, 15 years, churches all around the U.S. and all around the world, and I can't even, I don't even have a handful of negative experiences, to be honest. Do you have any, babe?
3: You know, I, I might have been a little bit more sensitive than Seth to it, where it might have not have been directly inside of a church service but maybe just walking into Walmart or going to the mall, just noticing looks. Um, we we married in 2006, and I think then things were getting more diverse, but um, it seems that things have gotten a lot more accepting of interracial couples, but then there's this huge tension now. What we didn't anticipate that um, when we got married that we would be doing as much race relations ministry. <laughs> we were just falling in love and getting married. Had no idea that this would be happening, that we would, that God would use us to just kind of help um, people see things and smooth out rough edges and help bring ministry and healing to uh, cultures. And such. so that was something we didn't expect. But right. tension in the church, right. um, not overt, not very much. Not I, I would agree with Seth for sure. So I'm talking with Seth and Nerva
0: Ready. You can find them at SethandNerva.com. That's just what I will direct you to because from there you can get to pretty much everything that they're doing. Um, you and I have been – we the three of us have been together in some environments um, where let's just say you're definitely the coolest people in the crowd. And <laughs> um, I mean like far and away, right, the most interesting people. Um, and yet – um, not, you know, not big crowds pressing in around you. You have been easy for me to, uh, you know, to encounter and talk with in those environments um, because there is, there, there has been some natural social distancing. For the, that would be language we would now use in, in COVID world. Um, and so I want to ask this question, and it's probably directed mostly to Nerva. Um, how can I do better? How can we, the collective, you know, culture of christians in the country today whatever that means how could we do better um i'm always delighted to see you guys i i love to talk with you um but i also recognize that that getting to know each other hurdle exists
3: and so how can we do better Mm, it's a great question i you know i the way we started the conversation i don't think you can ever go wrong seeing people as image bearers primarily sons and daughters of god um the greatest thing you can can do is to to remind people who they are in Christ. Um I I, I disagree with the group identity and and sizing people up, seeing people primarily by skin color I think it's I'm with Dr. King on the character issue but I I do love to celebrate cultures I'm I'm not for being colorblind I love the differences in cultures I celebrate it I honor it But then there is this thing of we have got to get back to the Word of God and stand our ground there, because when that is removed, it can be replaced with all manner of ideologies and worldviews, and that's where we're lost. But to remind one another that, hey, it's the Bible, that's where it starts, and that we are made and created in the image of God. We are brothers and sisters Yes, we are different. We have different journeys and different cultures and different things to um, to celebrate, different things to work through, different rough edges. And I think if we stay on that course, we'll be safe. I, I think that's my, my heartfelt answer.
0: I love you guys. Um, I look forward to the next time that I see you in person. I want to share with you a listener comment uh, that came to us on our text line just now. It's from Carolyn. Carolyn uh, says, "Thank you for this discussion. What beautiful transparency! Please thank them. I've found their website. I can't wait to learn more about them and their music. Such great image bearers. Amen. So I just wanted to share that with you and um, and." Thank you uh, for your transparency, for your music, for your uh, leading us um, into the very presence of the living God as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of the things that are uh, that are barriers to us here and now. Just really,
3: I appreciate it so much.
4: Well, thank you, Carmen. Thank
3: you, Carmen. A pleasure, for sure. We really enjoyed this. Thank you for having us. Likewise. Thank you. You guys can
0: find them at SethAndNerva.com. We'll be right back. <laughs> So the Statue of Liberty was uh, struck by lightning on Wednesday night. The pictures are pretty extraordinary if you haven't seen them yet. Um, it led me to ask uh, sort of this question, what does the Statue of Liberty stand for today and what does she stand against? You know she is a monument. Uh, is she subject to the kinds of conversations that we're having as a nation in terms of uh, monuments and statues? Had you even thought about that yet? What, what truth does the great monument to freedom called the Statue of Liberty, what truth does it declare? What truth did it declare for the generations of immigrants who came to these beautiful shores? Um, there's a promise in the Statue of Liberty that is based on Judeo-Christian worldview that values every human life, regardless of a person's uh, you know, place of origin. So I just want to lift that up today. The, the the Declaration of Independence claimed to be self, self-evident, self and it just seems as if there's a lot of things that are no longer self-evident, which means that you and I have to make them known again. We have to be the people who bear the reality of the truth of who God is and the great power of redemption in Jesus Christ. We have to bear it again to a culture that no longer sees it as self-evident. All right, that's all we got for you today and this week. Have a great weekend and God bless.